Do any other products or companies come to mind? Do you think that are at that point where we talked about earlier, the conditions are met, like there's, it's starting to get overcomplicated, the hatred's starting to build, it's a huge market, like ones that you think are at risk? I think Figma's at risk. So that's probably a hot hot take. take. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Unsolicited Feedback. I'm Brian Balfour, founder and CEO of Reforge. I'm joined today by my co-host, Fareed Masavad, And we have a special guest today, Ravi Mehta. Ravi was VP of Consumer Product at TripAdvisor for five years, then went on to be Chief Product Officer at Tinder, and most recently has been a founder and a CEO at a company called Outpace. In today's episode, we tackle a few different topics. One is we talk a little bit about the Linear Series B and how they're taking on uh, Jira with a new product that we extend that into a conversation about this big shift that Airtable has just made to move away from their roots of product-led growth into a full-on enterprise motion. And then at the end of this, we start to tackle this hot mess that Unity created with this big pricing change for their gaming developers. Talk a little bit about why this was such a big problem, how to roll out pricing changes, and more importantly, pricing model changes along the way. We hope you enjoy the episode. So the one that I wanted to actually introduce today and talk a little bit about is uh, this company named Linear. So Linear last week announced a Series B of about $35 million led by Excel. I saw some rumors that it's it's rumored to be around a $400 million valuation, but um, I'm not actually sure whether or not that's true. And I've been watching this company for uh, probably about a year, 18 months now. I've been very fascinated about the outside from the outside about it because it seems like they've been driving some, I mean, experiencing some really good growth uh, as evidenced by this round. And they've also been doing it profitably. So kudos uh, to that team uh, for doing that for the past year. But the reason I'm fascinated with Linear is that for all intensive purposes, is that it's Jira or when one of the many other issue or task managers for development, but with a modern UX applied. So very clean, minimal UI, kind of uh, dark mode, lots of keyboard shortcuts, designed for speed, very similar to Superhuman, if you've ever used Superhuman for email. And to be clear, I don't mean this in like a negative or reductive sense. I actually really like the product and wish Reforge used it. So womp womp, but (laughs) maybe we'll be out there at some point. But I did also read through a bunch of user reviews on people switching or why they were adopting Linear. And it's funny, like these are the exact reasons people mention. They are like, oh, it's, you know, better UI, it's simpler. They're not really mentioning any sort of like big new feature innovation. And there was this article posted by this guy, Pierre Paul Ferland, is I think how you pronounce it. And it's titled, uh, Linear is the lean Jira we've been dreaming of. And he has this line in there that says, Linear seems built with the premise of making a Jira that does not suck. Uh, and quote, quote, unquote, like that was his, that was his like TLDR, which I, which I thought like encapsulated it. But I think uh, the reason this all leads to is that it highlights a pattern that seems to repeat itself. Huge market, people start to hate the incumbent, new product comes in with modern UX, but no real like quote unquote 
innovation. They target startups as an early as a, a market and grow. And there's a and Ravi pointed out a bunch of examples of this in a chat we were having, you know, before recording this. You know, PeopleSoft to Workday to Gusto slash Rippling, Adobe to Sketch to Figma, WebEx to BlueJeans to Zoom. You know, Salesforce to HubSpot, and now there's like a bunch of like AI CRMs coming out as well. And so I just wanted to start off. I wanted to open up the conversation of why does this trend exist? Like, why can you actually build a really incredible company by essentially taking an existing product category and just layering on um, a modern UX? I have some of my own thoughts, but I'll open it up to you, Ravi, first. And uh, but I wanted to get your opinions, and and then I'll I'll share some of the things that I dug up as well. Yeah. So at Outpace, we actually started with Jira. We were using it probably for about a year, and then we switched over to linear about uh, nine or 10 months ago. And there are a few reasons why we switched. I think that Jira has, as it's evolved, it's just gotten more and more complicated. You can tell that as a product team, that they're getting lots of requests from the sales team about what different clients need. And they just continue to layer functionality on top of functionality. And yes, that makes it extremely powerful and extremely flexible and very customizable. But at the same time, it makes the basic core use case really difficult. And one of the things that just got so much simpler when we moved over to Jira is just the process of filing a bug. Filing a bug is something that, you know, if you're if you're in the middle of building software, you're going to be doing it often. It's a repeated use case. It's something that you're spending a lot of time on. And it's something like that if it's not as easy as it could be. You may not even bother filing the bug. It might be too difficult and then your software quality <laughs> suffers as a result. And the Jira process is really difficult, even getting to Jira. So I have bookmarks on Chrome for different views into Jira because I could never actually get back. Like every time I found I was going into Jira, I'd end up at the admin console or I'd have to figure out what specific project we were using. So just navigating to the actual interface where you're doing your work was pretty challenging. And then the process of filing a bug is really challenging. It's it's cumbersome. It doesn't really help you with the core things, especially now that oftentimes when you do steps to repro, you're doing it in video rather than you know actually writing out your steps to repro. Versus linear was just super simple, really easy to capture a video, really easy to upload a video, really easy to assign it, really easy to not assign it if you didn't know who it had to go to. And so that core, that 90% of time that we were spending um, was much more streamlined on linear versus Jira. Linear can't do everything that Jira can, but it does the 90% case much, much better in a much simpler way. One of the things we were worried about was the actual migration process, like how difficult is it going to be to move an existing database of issues over to Linear. We decided to just declare bug bankruptcy and move over and not move any of the any of the bugs. And that actually worked out pretty well because it turns out like a lot of the things that were already in the system were not things that we were, you know, they were on the backlog, but they were not necessarily things that were getting attention day to day. And it was really nice and somewhat cathartic to be able to say, let's start fresh, let's file the bugs and the tasks that we really need. And overall it was just a much more streamlined, much, much happier process for us as a team. Yeah. I so I think it sounds like one thing you're saying is like, look, products tend to get more complex over time as they respond to user feedback, respond to things like customizability, et cetera, and tend to build with their customers in mind, which is exactly what we should do. And I think you you wrote a blog post on this called like the power user trap, right? Which is that you're building 
for power users and that makes your product more and more complex over time and i think like one of the reasons like growth teams exist one of the jokes i make is like the growth team exists to remember that the new customer exists and like make sure that that person's experience continues to matter in a complex product and i think for sure jira has that and other bug trackers have that problem. They are deeply customizable. They're like really easy to like make fit your workflow perfectly. But that means if you're just starting from scratch, you're like, how do I even get started? I don't even know what's happening here. But I think there's a second, a a related but similar issue that you alluded to that I think is equally important, which is that, okay, I hate task managers. I really, really dislike them. I'm like, my brain can't handle it. I don't know. It's something about like the way I think I just have a really hard time with these complex, like task management systems. And I think one of the things that it, that the reasons is, and you brought this up with the bug thing is the person that gets the most value in a large organization around a tracker like this is like the project management function right? Like they're the ones who love Jira because it allows them to like understand everything, do reports, do all this customizable stuff, fit your scrum process perfectly, whatever it is. But the people that have to do the work, the engineers, the designers, and the people filing bugs, like the end user experience stinks for them, right? All of the overhead and work is on these like other end users who receive no value in return. Like I always say, like if your planning process puts all the effort on persona X, but all the value goes to persona Y, it's going to fail, <laughs> right? Because like, it's like you're asking a hundred people to do all this effort to make this other person on the other end, the like program manager's job easier. And I think a lot of these tools are built around that. So I think it's not only the complexity thing, it's that linear is focused And this pattern is focused on let's make the end user experience, the actual person who's in the product most of the time, really great and not just the buyer, right? Not just the like value receivers life good uh, for the things that they care about. But the thing I think is interesting is you basically can't go to market on a product like that by attacking existing customers of those tools. You have to start with either a segment that doesn't have this tool at all, right? Which would be like a vertical sort of strategy or by approaching startups, right? Or early companies that haven't yet decided this or where the lock-in is so low, like you described at your company where you can like just delete your bug backlog and start over because it doesn't really (laughs) matter. And so I think if you are building something like this, you do really have to think about what is a category of player for whom either the switching cost is really, really low or out of the box, like fresh, easy end user design matters enough that they'll try it for the first time and stick with you. So you're almost like a venture investor in your customers. You're like, let's go to this like early startup uh, ecosystem of people. Some of them will get big and we'll grow with them. And I think Asana is a good example of that. Like Asana, like sort of played that playbook out in this exact same category, simpler product built for end users, you know, really easy to get started on. And some of those people are really big and they were able to move up market, but then like the cycle continues, right? Like Asana comes, they do this, they build all this stuff and then the product gets complex and like linear shows up. And it's almost like, 
it's almost like a natural law of enterprise software is that like the incumbent player gets too complex, too hard to use, too focused on their biggest customers. Someone shows up and like starts with startups, which is a market too small for that company to care about right now. And like quietly builds their juggernaut. Some of those customers get big, et cetera. And I don't know, just to pull through a couple examples we've used, Figma kind of played this played this playbook in some respects. Zoom is in a lot of ways a great example of this where like, you know, people were buying these complex video conferencing tools that sucked for end users. So they went and built an easy to adopt bottoms up version of it. So I think it's, it's, it's like these combination of factors almost inevitably allow this bottoms up disruption to happen. And it just keeps happening faster and faster. Yeah. And I think people overestimate how big the switching costs are. So Zoom is a really good example. A lot of people were in companies that had access to blue jeans or, or WebEx, but it just wasn't working for folks. So they went out and they sought out a better solution and they started to use it personally. And then all of a sudden they were able to start to get some some traction in addition to selling to, to startups. I think another interesting example of this is social networks. So people thought, you know, social networks were going to be a winner take all th type of thing. Facebook was going to have the biggest social graph. And as a result, there was going to be really high switching costs. And so no other social network would be able to flourish. But since then, we've had Snapchat, we've had Discord, we've had Instagram, we've had WhatsApp. And it turns out that people, especially younger people, have pretty small and ever-changing social networks. And so they're willing to try out a new tool, seed it with a new social network, use it to talk to a different set of folks. And I think the same thing happens in, in enterprise. There's often new beginnings within work that people are doing, whether it's particular projects or particular teams. And when they start that new thing, yeah, they're willing to take a look at what's out there and make a switch if they can find something that is cost-effective and just works a lot better for them than trying to figure out how to use the morass of, you know, whether it's Salesforce or, or Workday or, or Jira within these large organizations. I think that that's true for Zoom though, because, but maybe less true for something like task management, because I do think that like, this is the tricky thing. Durability comes through customization of workflows, deep integration into the way you do work and system of record type things. Whereas like video conferencing doesn't have that, but at the same time, it makes you more susceptible to that bottoms up disruption because the things you're doing to drive long-term retention, lock-in and high switching costs are exactly the things that make you vulnerable to someone else building a simple clean product. I want to come back to Zoom because I feel like on the on the surface you could look at Zoom and say they are at risk of getting disrupted by a simpler uh, like basically this pattern. But this kind of brings up a question of what conditions have to be true for this strategy or playbook to work? Because I of course have seen tons of angel investment pitches that essentially take the approach of you know everybody hates X product. And we're going to build, you know, the quote unquote better version of yeah. it. And it's, you know, it is kind of the simpler. But so for every linear that seems to be working, there's probably a thousand examples where this playbook doesn't work. And so you two mentioned a couple of these conditions, one which I really liked, which is like, you've got to attack a market where the lock-in is low or the switching costs are low to get any sort of traction. But I'm interested, like, what other conditions do you feel like have to be met for this to actually be a reasonable path. So I said one, which is, I think, I actually think either switching costs need to be low. So there are either low network effects, low, 
you know, lock in low data transfer problems, those kinds of things, or you need to be approaching a market that has this problem in a burning way and still has not yet chosen a product, right? So like in this case, linear goes to startups, build something purpose built for the user who actually cares about task management in these, which is the engineer instead of like the program manager or the executive or whatever it is and makes it really easy for them to use and adopt. So I think it's, it's, it's either or there versus, and both is probably best in the long run. I think the other thing is it has to be a problem that really, really matters. The, this is one of the more important problems that like a small set of developers have a lot of the it's X, but it doesn't suck, you know, are often in things that are like, yeah, but like that tool is good enough. So like, I, I think it has to be like a hair on fire problem type thing would be another ingredient. I would, I would uh, alter that a little bit, which is I wrote, uh, I was thinking the hatred has to be real, right? <laughs> like there, there's like the, the incumbent product has to have hit a point of hatred for a, some subset of audience. There's some boiling point there, right? Which is, I think, true with all of the examples that we mentioned. <laughs> certainly, certainly Salesforce, certainly things like Workday. The interesting one is like Sketch to Figma. I didn't like really feel like there was like that that boiling point on there. And so it was like a little bit of a, a different tack. But certainly that, that you know, level of despair the spice for Jira existed among a sub audience. And, and I think if that, that isn't true, right. The, the, like the X, but it doesn't suck. Doesn't, doesn't really work. Like there has to be some segment of the market that really agrees with you that this thing really sucks to the point that, you know, they're, they're willing to go out on Twitter and tweet about it. For Figma, I think the 10 X difference was file sharing. So anytime like a designer got to too large a sketch file that needed multiple designers to contribute to it, they had to figure out version control around it or how to share it. And there were constantly conflicts. They'd be able they'd lose work as a result. And so moving to something like Figma enabled them to eliminate that. So even though they didn't hate sketch, there was this 10x better yeah. use case by moving into the cloud. Yeah. And we talked about that a bunch in the, in the last episode. It's basically like if there's a way that collaboration can be first class in the product and the incumbent tool doesn't have that, that's a vector. So there's got to be some like angle where you are, while it's worse in one way, it's better in some other way. That's 10 X. It's interesting because like linear superhuman, a couple of these, like it's X, but it's really well designed. Don't actually have like necessary or arc the browser that we were just chatting about before we got started here is really another interesting example where like it doesn't have like an obvious killer feature that makes it way better but people still kind of love it and i think it's because it's like tightly designed in these nice little ways that fit a certain persona really well so maybe that's another angle which is something like there's a sub persona that uses product x doesn't super love it. And if you build specifically for them, so superhuman built for CEOs and like, and VCs and really busy people who go through a lot, get a lot of inbound email, right? You can build something really awesome for them. That segment's too small for Gmail to care about. So I can like really start to build for it. Then maybe you don't need killer features. You just need to like, but that needs to be a high value set of customers who probably also talk about the product a lot. Like you need a loud category. Uh, It can't just be like quietly care about it. And this is the thing you see about these products is like 
arc, linear, superhuman, etc. Like the people who use them are really loud about them. Like they talk about them all the time. I think they all also solve a irritating workflow. So like the thing that people don't want to do is spend a lot of time slinging bugs in Jira or spend a lot of time sharing files in Sketch or figuring out how to get a process done in Workday. And so if you could streamline something that a person is spending a significant amount of their day on, which Superhuman does really well for email, and you can do it in a way that makes it feel really streamlined for them and feels like they get some time back to do the work that they really want to do, that really opens up the opportunity for disrupting some of these enterprise players, which are really solving for the enterprise buyer and not for the day-to-day workflows of the individual users that are using them. Yeah. I do th- I do also think that I think a lot of what we're talking about is <clears throat> comes down to how do you narrow the use case? How do you select that at an initial use case? And I will say that, you know, we're comparing Linear and Jira, but one thing that Linear has definitely done is they've narrowed the use case to modern software development, whereas Jira has over time expanded to this general IT case where they're like servicing the IT buyer in these really large enterprises, which kind of brings me to my second point, which is, you know, Linear, like the obviously the future is still to be written here. It's a Series B company huge size difference between <laughs> between jira uh, jira and linear but i think one thing that i think is interesting is what will carry linear forward to maybe a potentially public company in the future is that there has to be a signal that these la- these quote-unquote laggards using the incumbent product are starting to shift into whatever this modern shift is. And we see this all the time at Reforge, which is that there's all of these old school, not old school, but older companies that had more of a IT approach to technology and software are trying to shift into modern product in modern software development. And those will be Linear's customers at some point. And if that shift is not happening, you know, at some point that the new product hits some sort of ceiling at at some point. And so I do think that is a trend that probably will play a tailwind in Linear's future. A couple, couple rounds from now, my guess is they still have a lot of pathway, a lot of runway to run on this on this current market. But I, I guess that brings me to another question, which is you all, you, both of you mentioned the power user trap before, which is kind of the thing that leads to this overcomplication of the product, which creates the opportunity. Can you like actually stay out of the power user trap over a period of time? Or do your power users over time just create such a higher willingness to pay and such a higher monetization opportunity that to continue to drive growth, you have to cater to them. I think you have a choice. You are either going to build for power users and get yourself caught up in the power user trap of a complex product. You add customizability, you add direct integrations, you add a lot of stuff. And it's like now a new user can't like make sense of the product or a casual user can't make sense of the product anymore. That's sort of the classical, most common pattern. I think the other version is you stay really simple and you leave a lot of, you basically have graduation out of your product into more complex, customizable products over time, which I think is also a relatively common pattern. You see this in analytics tools, for instance, like... I keep my product simple and it's just like not good enough 
for me anymore. And I like graduate to the like hand rolled, you know, system. I'm sure this happens in HR products like all the time. Right. So I think you do have a choice, but but one has a lot of money associated with it, which is like focus on the high end power users. And the other sort of is a high risk play, right? Brian, I think HubSpot being super focused on mid-market, for instance, and saying, we're not going to be attracted to this large market, you know, this enterprise market takes a ton of discipline. You have to be good to say no to all of that. So I think you kind of have a choice. I don't know, Ravi, what do you think? I think there is a choice, but it's a really hard choice. And all of the organizational momentum is to fall into that power user trap. And I think it happens as a result of companies that started with a small business market or a mid-market as they get bigger, they want larger contracts. And so they move into the enterprise. And so they move from a product-led growth motion to more of an enterprise sales motion. And when you do that, you then have enterprise sales reps who are talking to customers who have very sophisticated needs, who have a lot of value associated with the contracts and who are making these requests that are you know, essentially power user requests. And that over time, get the product to get more and more complicated to meet with all of these different use cases. So the dominant way that companies seek to grow really pushes them into the power user trap. And I think it also, it not only happens on the sales side, I think it also happens on the product side. Product managers are much more focused on improving the product through what feature we can add rather than what feature we can take away or what feature we can we can optimize. It's much more satisfying to say, hey, these are the set of things that we're working on versus to say, here's the set of things that we didn't, didn't do to keep our product simple. And so you have that combination of push towards complexity on the product side and on the sales side, and it becomes really, really difficult. And I think this is one of the reasons that disruption is a thing. Yeah. It just It's a pattern that just consistently happens over and over again. And big companies know what's happening while it's happening internally, but there's just so much organizational me- momentum that they can't counteract it. And just to be clear, it's not like a bad process. You're literally doing exactly what you yeah. should do, which is like listening to your customers and helping them solve more problems. <laughs> like, you know, it's the best example I can think of of a company that is like re- almost religiously opposed to falling into the power user trap is Apple. Like now this may not be true today, but they are notoriously like the criticism of Apple products is it doesn't do X. It doesn't do Y. This other Android, podcast app, you know, movie creator, GarageBand, all of these products have a very fair criticism, which is it's no good for someone who actually does this for a living, right? Even Keynote, numbers, like all these. And and that's a choice that they make. They are like, we don't do that. Like we build for the just getting going casual use case, You can use somebody else's stuff if you want to go up from there. And so it's like every time a new iPhone comes out, I don't want to talk about the newest iPhones, but like for a decade, every time an iPhone came out, somebody was like, oh, well, Android's done that for four years. And it's like purposeful. It's not because they're idiots. It's because that's exactly the strategy, right? And I think that a lot of these companies are trying to follow that like Apple model of we do just the minimum needed to make so that the out-of-box experience continues to be magical and really stay focused on that and that people will fall in love with the product and it will be harder to switch. And they make really tough decisions to kill products when they're not not working, 
they had a photo management app called Aperture that you know, a lot of photographers really relied on and they made the difficult decision mm. to kill that, oh. ceding the entire market to Adobe and Lightroom. But it was an example of they want to keep simplicity in the product line, they want to keep simplicity in their products. Okay, so I think, Ravi, you mentioned this, which is like the shift from a smaller market, PLG motion, more to an enterprise motion, which was the other thing that was announced last week around Airtable. Airtable, unfortunately, announced another layoff, but the other bullet point as part of that announcement is that that layoff was in support of a strategic move to move up market to the enterprise, which is certainly not where they started, right? They started very much down market in this value prop of, a database for everybody or a, like a spreadsheet for everybody with all these kind of superpowers on top, very his- historical around P- a PLG motion. So it's interesting to look like, you know, where this company is making one of these decisions in real time as we talk about this. And so I think it's an dis- interesting question from your take. Do you feel like from the outside Airtable might be falling into the power user trap, moving away from what made them successful? Are they are they going down that strategic choice that that you two just mentioned? It feels like they are by consciously focusing up market. I think one of the things that all of these companies that disrupt have in common is that there's usually small autonomous teams that need a better solution and are willing to choose something. It could be Trello, it could be Linear, it could be Airtable. And I think the innovation that Airtable really had was they were able to take the power that large databases have and give small autonomous teams the ability to create their own their own data schemas, their own databases, their own interfaces really quickly and easily and be able to solve a broad set of use cases within an organization based on the specific needs of each team and each member on that team. And that was a market that just didn't exist and was different from the very crowded and complex database market. I think as they go up market, an interesting question is, you know, as they solve deeper and deeper use cases for people, what's the line between what Airtable does, which is a really easy to use no code solution to building a database versus I think they have competitive competition from two different angles. One is as you deepen your use case with Airtable, it's often you're managing content or you're tracking bugs or you're doing uh, social media management. All three of those use cases have dedicated products that just does a much better job than Airtable can do. In addition, if they start competing in really deep use cases, they also start to compete within the database market where there's companies that have you know very sophisticated databases, very sophisticated application building capabilities on top of those databases. So I think Airtable's initial thing that allowed them to disrupt was the fact that they didn't go after either one of those markets. They were able to solve for folks in a very lightweight way, a broad set of use cases and bring make a database as easy to use as a spreadsheet or a document. And as they go up market, I don't know what their differentiation is. And it feels like they're moving into really a competitive red ocean. I think the question mark for me is, is this a go-to-market change or a product change? And what I mean by that is you can imagine if you're in the business of helping people build custom workflows, custom tools, custom like database stuff, et cetera, in the small to mid market or for small ACVs or small use cases, that ends up in a world where you have a lot of money, you've raised a ton, et cetera. The customer pull is going to be hire a bunch of solutions, people, hire a bunch of 
say SMB sales folks, hire a bunch of SD BDRs to like look at all your existing clients and try to find good customers inside of them. And that can be really expensive, like really expensive. This is like one of the funny secrets of PLG is that like the, what it says on the box is like, you get this low cost customer acquisition. It's really low cost to service a customer, et cetera. But for some complex use cases, if you decide to put in the go to market like stuff, not just around marketing, cause you have to attract a ton of customers to drive revenue, but also on the like, you know, customer success side, et cetera. And you really want to service that mid market or smaller that can cost you a ton of money. And it sounds like part of this is a go to is a go to market change, which is like, hey, we need to focus our go to market effort on these larger customers and larger companies where we can get to higher ticket stuff, et cetera. Now, on the product side, that may be, hey, we need to shift more of our R&D development towards the things that people are pulling on. I, well, I feel like a go to market shift eventually leads to a product shift, right? Mm -hmm. Like those two, uh, those two are you know, we could. We could say, ah, oh, we're going to know we're going to keep the product simple and all that kind of stuff. But I think to the earlier conversation is that once you introduce all the all those voices into the room, it's very hard to impossible to ignore them, especially at scale. And it eventually it eventually leads to that. It, it was interesting. Alina Verna also posted something on LinkedIn where she mentioned that like a difference between layering into this versus a complete shift to the enterprise, which is how they framed it. I believe in the article was like, this is a shift to the enterprise and that it usually looks like on the surface that this enterprise move is a good move initially, but a lot of folks tend to lack the actual attribution to show that the PLG motion is what's creating the energy. It's what's creating the inertia for those deals. And as soon as you start to take that away or you start to de-emphasize that, then, you know, you start to over time, over the mid to long term, you know, the sales metrics start slowing down, the velocity starts slowing down, like all of those types of things. And then you're kind of left with, well, what happened, right? Like this, this move was, this move was showing such good signs at the beginning. And then there's almost like a reversal to, it's almost a reversal PLG. And a company that I can think of that went through this exact loop was New Relic, right? They were very PLG in their the beginning of their initial initial phases, and then as they moved public, they moved shifted way up to the enterprise, and then they kind of did a total one eighty back to uh oh, like we ignored this whole PLG pipeline for a long period of time, and our sales efficiency and all these things have started to suffer, and then they started to reignite it. But it's really hard to reignite it, yeah. You know, once once you leave it, because it's way harder to go from simplifying something that's complicated to something simpler, as you two mentioned, because it's just harder to kill stuff than it is to add stuff. Yeah. And and that 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 reversal takes takes much longer, much harder moves. Yep. That said, I had the pleasure of working with the VP of product at Airtable, uh, this guy Alon Frank at Slack. He ran the enterprise team at Slack and did an amazing job of like navigating this how do I build a product that serves the needs of our largest customers while at the same time making sure that like the things that made it successful to date continue to be true, easy to adopt, easy to use, and an end user focus. And I think it is possible to do that. It's really, really hard and you have to care about it. You can't just say like, oh, we're just going to build for these folks and it's over. Like who cares about new users, et cetera. And so there are examples of it working. I have some trust that this company will be able to figure that out. And their DNA seems really product focused and end user focused. And so it was like when we were 
building, it was always like, okay, administration and the back end support at Slack is important, but our first customer is the end user. So as long as you can kind of keep that balance and or always think about both personas, I think it is possible to do. It's just really hard. <laughs> it's just really, really hard. So I hope that they're able to pull it off. I am. I do think that what's interesting is like, it does certainly put them in more competition with like automation workflow type tools than it is just like an end user spreadsheet that does does some cool stuff. It ends up being more like, I think my guess is if you were to focus on Airtable for the enterprise, it's on building custom applications for your internal workflows. And that's good because it has a lot of lock-in and a lot of customizability, but it's also probably a more complex product than what they're selling today. I think it's a product where it's worth looking at the user experience because they've done a really good job of preserving the pick it up and use it dynamic that they had early on while having a lot of complexity that's one or two levels deep. And I think one of the things that they've done really well is they have different modes of usage. You have the core Airtable mode, and then you've got interfaces and you've got automations. And so that really complex functionality around app development and workflow automation is something that you can dive into and it works well and it's deep. But the, the core usage of, I just want to create a base. I want to, you know, I essentially want something that's a more powerful version of a Google sheet is still there. It hasn't gotten much more complicated. It's still pretty easy to, easy to pick up. So I think it's a really good example of how to navigate this from a UX standpoint. And for me, I think the, the question really is like, what does the opportunity look like as they go up, up market? Cause I think they have the product to support it. And what are the, what are the competitive threats? Like, how are they going to deal with, you know, competing with dedicated vendors in particular use cases or compete with more sophisticated database solutions? Do you, can, does, do any other products or companies come to mind? Do you, do you think that are at that point where we talked about earlier, the conditions are met, like there's, it's starting to get overcomplicated, the hatred starting to build, it's a huge market, like do, do, ones that you think are at risk. I think Figma's at risk. So that's probably oh, a hot, a hot, hot take. take. But yeah, I think what they've they've done with with dev mode and what they've done in terms of the complexity of the design all makes a ton of sense. Like there's nothing out there that's like it. It's an incredibly useful design production tool. But it's kind of gotten away from its pick up and play dynamic that made it really easy for people to jump into the product and start to design, create different variations and iterate towards something that they then wanted to harden into a production ready design. I think the antidote there might be FigJam. Like FigJam does, is a really nice pick up and play product. And so maybe the two of them work together. But for me, I feel like Figma's on this kind of precipice of th they might be falling into the power user trap and they're opening up an opportunity for a very lightweight, very fast design to collaborative design tool to come in for that front part of the design process, which is very conceptual and, and very iterative, iterative. And then Figma, I think is, is just unrivaled in the back end of the design process, the production element. Yeah. I will say though, that the hatred is not there. It feels no. like the love yep. is there still. <laughs> like we crushed on Figma in a, in a previous episode and it definitely seems like yeah. there, but, but I see, I see the, uh, the trajectory that you're trying to, to the possible trajectory that you're trying to paint. Yeah. I hate to say this because I personally love the product and obviously spent a meaningful amount of my life helping build it. But I think I've, 
the the volume of like Slack is a problem, not a helper, has grown just sort of like steadily over time. And it's actually sort of like the opposite of the power user trap. It's almost like it's simplicity. It, it makes messaging so easy that like if you're a power user in a large company or a large organization, you're just like inundated with noise. It's the same exact problem email has. It is not unique to Slack. It is unique to, it is a problem of communication in a large, large node network. You know, it's like messages increase with the square of the number of people in it. And so like, that's a lot of noise and a lot of problems. I think there may be some opportunity, like right now the network effects are so strong internally the it's, it's, it's the default, but it does start to feel like overload could be the thing that, and AI could be the things that like make it possible. But I think that one's tricky because I'm not sure that you can bottoms up disrupt with like small startups with it. It's like the, the problems are really acute in large, like when you have a lot of people talking, I don't know how you would execute that, but I, that's one that the tenor is shifting or has, and it's been shifting for a long time, but it certainly seems louder and louder and louder around communication tools in particular Slack. Mm. Farid, do you feel that's a problem with the product and the way it's evolved, or that's a problem with the way that people are using it? Well, I think it's easy to say that it's a problem with the way people are using it. There's a whole lot of like right ways to use Slack. Like you shouldn't at people at everyone all the time. Like you should be able to ignore channels that aren't like relevant to you. It shouldn't be treated as a real time communication and be more async. You should use threads. You should write longer form things. You should use search more effectively instead of asking the same questions over and over again. But the problem is, is those are all convention versus like product experience. And so it is very easy for it to get messy. Like one of the most common conversations in the alumni, ex-employee alumni Slack is, how do I help my company use Slack better? And <laughs> it's like, it's just hard. Like every former yeah. employee turns into the Slack success manager over time at their new organization. That's not a scalable way to do that. So I think that there might be a world, the same way linear is an opinionated product about a very specific set of workflows that allows that product to be way more successful for the people who share those opinions and way simpler. There may be a world where like a very opinionated versus open-ended, more horizontal communication tool could start to chip away at smaller subsets of the market where that version of how you want to communicate is better. I don't know what that looks like. I personally haven't designed the Slack killer. That is not something I've spent deep amounts of time thinking about, but I think it's certainly possible. At Tinder, we designed a feature called Are You Sure? where it used AI to look at a message that a person was about to send and then analyze it and then ask them if it was going to be potentially illicit or offensive. Are you sure you want to want to send this? And that feels like a very viable feature Slack for this should, new version of Slack. Slack should build that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. In multiple directions, by the way, maybe it would uh, solve some HR issues in addition to the over communication <laughs> problem. So <laughs> how about you, Brian? What are like, oh, I think it's the one we mentioned. I think it's the one we mentioned earlier, Zoom. There's a few conditions that I see being met. So I don't think the hatred is there. I think that's the one that is there, but there, there's a, there's a few pieces of it. First is that they, as we talked about in the last episode, 
they are on a product velocity just like there's like burning through they are adding so many products they are adding so many features right now and you combine that with their historical strength is not consumer grade user experience go into their admin controls and you will experience that your you'll experience that yourself and i think the combination of those two things that velocity combined with not having that strength probably leads to exactly what we're talking about now the question is is that the is like it, it, and the other thing is like i actually think there's a pretty low switching cost and there's an opportunity for smaller remote companies now that don't have really large meetings where you run into all of those technical issues that have all that require a lot of the depth in the in the complication and investment in technology that zoom has made to make the video quality work at that large scale. So I do think there is like a market to go after there in in addition to it. Now, the so it, it's not there yet, but the it feels like once again that the, the ingredients are there to mix the power user traps too. And it's headed in that direction. Now, the, the question though is, is that they are by far in the best on video quality and that required a technology investment that they've been at for many, many years. And you would have thought that if there was somebody going to disrupt them, you might have seen it during the whole COVID tailwinds. But a lot of the new players that popped up during that time period haven't really done so well post-COVID. But I think the new thing that has emerged over the past 12 months is Zoom in search of post-COVID growth is on this product velocity, which seems like it's pointed at making the product pretty pretty complicated and pretty pretty cluttered so I, i'm interested to see where that lands even though like i we are avid avid users of zoom and have been for many many years inside reforge sounds like you two don't disagree with that so i'm interested in hearing the counter take i haven't seen the complexity in zoom i think it's buried to a certain degree it's it's in that sort of right rail where it just keeps keeps getting more and more complicated and i tend not to use that stuff, the core use case is still really good. Like in terms of just that's fair. setting up a meeting, getting into a meeting, the video quality being really good. Sharing is really good. I recently switched and tried to use Google Meet and it's been hard because you can't share on mobile very easily. And even the web sharing is is not great. I think the fact that Zoom's a desktop app and they've really nailed the sharing mechanics make that easy. And so for the core use cases, it doesn't feel like those have been impeded by a lot of the complexity. I, I've been adding. I agree with that, but let, let's sit. Let's pretend we're the PMs inside there on those new products and features that are buried, that probably aren't yes. getting the traction <laughs> that they need. What is the next logical step in conclusion? Right? It's like, oh, we have got to surface this where all of the eyeballs are to drive growth. Right? So, yeah, I, I actually agree. Totally agree with you. At its current state, they have that core use case still has kept that simplicity. But it feels like the gravitational pull might end up going in the other direction. Yeah. But it'll be interesting to see how, how what they do with those new new products. Yeah, look, I don't think Zoom will be susceptible to the frontal like, hey, we're going to be the default video conferencing for your meeting. If anyone's going to win that, it's going to be Microsoft Teams or Google because like they're integrated into the calendar. They're already there. We already watched the calendar wars go down. Zoom surprisingly did well because of how good their product is as a replacement there. It will be around use cases like the ones that aren't that. Like 
to Slack's credit, Huddles is an awesome product. Like it's a great little product. Like it has replaced a large it has amount a lot of Zooms. better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we uh, it has started our our usage has started to gravitate there as well. Like when I can, I use a Huddle. Now, I can't make a calendar invite for a Huddle, so we don't use it for that. But like for every other kind of like quick video communication, it's the default. We're recording a podcast on another app, Riverside, with video conferencing. That's very, very similar for that use case. Now, again, these are awesome because they all look like too small for like the person who owns the meeting to care about. But I suspect there are other use cases surrounding it that will happen. Maybe there's someone who builds a great product for recurring meetings, right? That have associated Jira tasks or linear tasks, et cetera, that or Someone will build a standalone Huddles product. I don't think that can be successful. Like Huddles is successful because of the Slack, you know, already owns the presence and communication and direct messaging. But I suspect there will be someone who does something unique. People tried this around like the virtual office concept during COVID. I don't know if any of those players have been particularly successful, but I I think you're right, Brian. Like some of those ideas might turn viable because if Zoom continues to like, like struggle to get to the next thing so maybe maybe those were all just too soon instead of you know not things people wanted i don't know their focus seems to be let's innovate within what's happening within the meeting and i think they've missed opportunities outside of the meeting to freed's point about calendaring and messaging are both things that i would have thought they would have built products around with the goal of making zoom the hub of a person's or uh, an employee's Uh, interaction with other teammates and so the fact that it's still it's essentially used only for this one use case and they're trying to make that use case a lot deeper and they're not thinking about what happens outside of it is surprising to me that's funny we we had this conversation with adam and and some of us had the opposite opinion but they are doing those things they're just not doing them well but But yeah this is this is this is (laughs) that's maybe the problem i literally yeah you know this is the point is that in the past 12 months they've launched a, a loom competitor a calendly competitor a miro competitor uh, notes competitor they just launched notes i think like a week or two ago okay uh, and like four or five others right which gets to the product velocity point but also to the point you mentioned which is those things are buried right and so the users are not even aware of them at this that point and that problem probably ends up getting solved at some point so it's just like it's these like i feel like seeing the trains just head towards yeah. each other but i hope not i hope i, yes. I actually i really hope not just quick thing, meta, meta, meta note here. What's so fun about these is there's no right answers. Reasonables, good, thoughtful product people can have like dramatically different di- opinions about what the right strategy for a different product can be. And maybe all of them are right or all of them are wrong. <laughs> and we keep coming back to the same ones. And so like at the end of the day, you have to kind of trust that the team's building are the ones closest to it who understand it best and have the best perspective to solve these problems. But yeah, I mean, I, it, from the outside, it certainly looks like Zoom feels like a good susceptible disruption candidate. All right, we've got to move on to this Unity pricing uh, debacle yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, that happened last week. I'll let one of you queue it up. I, it was hard for me to follow actually, because I, I, I saw it all over trending on reddit and stuff there was some real customer rage around this so i'm interested in diving they a little bit deeper opened a pandora's box here of frustration and i think that's well robbie why don't you kick it off here uh and sort of set us up what is unity what did it do why is it 
Why is everyone so mad at them? Yeah, so Unity is one of the top game development engines. Game developers need an engine to build on top of. There's a significant amount of code for 3D and sound and other things that are necessary to even get started in building a game. Unity focused on mobile, and they were one of the first game engine companies to do that. And today, something like 70% of mobile games are built on Unity. They make money in two ways. So they make money by charging a per seat fee to developers. So developers will, similar to other cloud software, pay an annual subscription for their seat to Unity. And that gives them the tools to build the game with. And then Unity has also been focused on building out an ad network that developers can choose to implement within within their games. And they make about half their revenue from one and half their revenue from the other. But they're not a profitable company. They actually lost $900 million on a gap basis in 2022 on $1.5 billion in revenue. So really significant losses. And they're thinking about, you know, how do we get to a point where we can more profitably grow this business? And so they launched a new pricing scheme. And so the scheme that they launched was they said that starting in 2024, they're going to charge game developers on a per install basis based on which version of the Unity engine that they're using. And the fees range up to 20 cents per install. So games could you know, end up paying hundreds of thousands or, or millions of dollars in fees, depending on how many installs that they're getting. There was a huge and immediate backlash. So Unity actually had to close its offices a couple of days last week due to credible death threats. There's been petitions from multiple game developers who've said that they're moving off the Unity engine. Some game developers have actually decided to pull their games down and not make them available for sale. And so there's been this really significant backlash because of these price, which is essentially a price increase, but Freed, you have an interesting way way of thinking about this. And now Unity's in this position of backtracking on some of this stuff, clarifying on on other things. But right now, you know, after the weekend, the the fervor hasn't really died down, and a lot of game developers are talking about how Unity has permanently impacted their brand and how you know they're actively searching for other game engines to build on top of. And so it's an interesting question of you know what. What should a platform do that is providing a lot of value to its developers in order to better monetize its platform? And Ravi, you you originally in your career, you were an indie game developer, right? I was a long time ago. Yeah, I got my start as an indie game developer right before I went to, went to Microsoft. Um, but this was the pre-engine days. You had to build your own engine back then. So this thing, this is probably one of the biggest unforced errors, self-owned moves that I've seen in a long time from a product company. Like, and it's really easy to chalk this up as a communications failure, which it absolutely was. Like, just to be clear, massive communications failure. They like said they were unclear about a lot of things as they were, when they announced this, it's a huge change. And a lot of people had a lot of what I would call slightly wrong responses to it that the company had actually like had decent answers to, but like always felt like they were chasing their tails around like answering to it. And I think the fundamental root cause, while it looks on the outside, like a giant communications failure is actually a complexity failure around like, what is a, not just a pricing change. Like if you were just increasing prices, people will be pissed. 
people are always mad when they the, and and game developers are like notoriously like tough customers, right? But they fundamentally changed the pricing model, not just the price. They shifted from it's basically a SaaS tool. Let's ignore the ad network for a second, right? That's a different product. To we're going to charge you for the runtime. Like every single one of your users who uses it, we're going to charge to, which is okay. Creates a bunch of questions. But like the first thing is I spent like an hour on the phone with a game developer friend to like deeply understand this. It took 25 minutes of that conversation (laughs) to describe and lay out the facts of what this was, how it was charged and what all the edge cases are. The screen shows this, this grid. This is so complex. And his joke, this is my friend, Jesse Kurlanchik. He um, now works at Blizzard, but was a uh, 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 indie game developer at a smaller studio in Boston for a long time. And someone I worked with at Zynga was that like, you know, him and I were chatting about it and it just like looks like a spreadsheet change. Like the kind of thing a business person like put into a spreadsheet got all the requests internally for all the edge cases like oh what about small developers well let's put a revenue minimum in and what about fraud let's like do this other thing and what about like it getting too expensive over time or free to play let's add this thing and this thing and this thing and it ended up with this like massive complex morass that like makes a ton of sense like for the deeply rational brain but like it's impossible to communicate like impossible to communicate. And I feel like the lesson learned here is if you're doing a pricing model change, simplicity is your friend. (laughs) Like, and this thing is just not, this grid doesn't even show half the complexity. If you use the ad network, you get charged less. That's like one, but on it, their model for how they count, how many installs you have they described as a proprietary model that obviously we can't share with you because we wouldn't want you to cheat it. That you have to just trust us deals with fraud and like side downloads and all. there's all these other ways people can like look like a download. What about if I my game gets used on a subscription service like Game Pass? Well, we're going to figure that out for you. So there's like opaqueness, edge cases, just like so many. Well, what about this? Well, it's actually that's that like just turns this into like a, I think if you tried to make the flow chart of how I get charged, it would have like 400 decision trees in it. And I think that's just like a mistake. You can blame your comms team, but like you made a thing that's impossible to communicate. And I think there's really two areas where they failed. The first one is that this new pricing model is not aligned with how you create value for developers. And so for a platform, it's incredibly important to align your business model with how you're delivering value. And you can either deliver value in one of two ways. You can either reduce a developer's cost of development, or you can help a developer make more money. And so a pricing model that ties to one or the other is something that a developer is willing to willing to work with. And that's what their per seat pricing model is. Their per seat pricing model says, we're going to give your developers hundreds or thousands of hours of productivity by giving them all of these tools. And so we're going to charge you to reduce those costs. Their ad network, on the other hand, says, hey, we're going to help you make more money. And so we're going to take a portion of that. The problem with the per install pricing model is it doesn't align with either one of those those things. And it works differently for certain developers, depending on what business model choices that they've made. And so some of the developers that were the most 
upset about this are developers that create free-to-play games where they get a massive number of installs and then they're not sure how much revenue they're going to be able to generate on the back end, some of which are not trying to generate a significant amount of revenue from microtransactions. So those developers are going to go from potentially having a profitable business to, you know, admittedly in a rare case, potentially having a business that's no longer profitable where they're actually not making money and Unity is making making money. So I think that was the first thing that they really fell down on is not really thinking about what is the business model of the people that are using our platform and how do we build our business model in line with that. And then I think the second thing was that they really just broke trust. They have for many years said, you know, we are a game engine that supports indie game developers. We're here to provide you with tools. We don't monetize on a rev share. We're not an app store. App stores are taking significant fees. So game developers are paying 30% in the Apple App Store and the Android App Stores. They're paying 30% in Steam. So they're already paying significant fees. And Unity has positioned itself differently from that. And developers made choices about their business model based on their assumptions of what the fees to Unity would be. And so they really broke broke that trust. And I think right now, you know, they've got two things to, to figure out. One is like, what is actually the right business model that allows them to better capture a significant amount of value that they're creating? And then how do we restore the trust with the game developer community? I think there's an important nuance there because I think on the surface, you would look at this and be, and it's like, well, I want to I want to align my pricing model to the value as value grows for my customer. And on the surface, you could look at it as like, well, the more installs they have, probably the more users and therefore the more money. So it's kind of like loosely aligned. But I think the point that you're actually trying to make is that it's not aligned to the value that Unity is helping them create, right? Unity is not helping them get more installs into their game. They are either yep. the tool is actually helping them either create a better game more efficiently or the ad network is like helping them monetize. And those two things are very different. The, the value that I am specifically helping you create versus aligning my pricing model to how value grows like for for your business and that seems like part of part of the fundamental disconnect yeah like imagine okay to use figma as an example just to try to tie this into like something that non-game developers may understand imagine figma had a runtime and you could actually ship your figma design on a website somewhere and people could interact with it this would be like if as if after many, many years, Figma said, hey, I know we've been charging you $100 per person per month for this, but now we're going to charge you on the number of monthly active users you have across all Figma delivered websites. And because our code is running on your website, so we should charge you for that. Which again, like for a spreadsheet MBA kind of person like makes rational sense. It is a value metric. The more MAUs you have, the more value you're getting from our like website builder tool. And some tools do charge that way, right? Like there's a user limit or a total number of activity limit, but it's like, it's the shift that's crazy it, that like shocks people, but also that like for a large number of game developers, this is like really punitive. The funny thing is, is that like on its face, if you were like a hyper rational person, average game, indie game, five to 10 bucks, 20 cents an install, it's like a 1%, 2% tax, but it's so different than what you <laughs> would have expected or what you've been sold to date that it just like, it was an immediate freak out. 
And I think a reasonable one at that. So I think an interesting question is, is this a viable opportunity for competitors to Unity? Or is there so much lock-in in this space that yes, game developers are going to be upset, but the practical process of switching to a different engine is so significant that they're not going to be able yeah. to able to switch. The really interesting thing is that I think actually makes this an even bigger shock to developers is a game takes many years to build and you make your engine decision way at the beginning of that development process. So there's someone who decided to use Unity. I saw some tweets about this to ship a game that's not going to come out for a year or two. And now the fundamental things that would have gone into their decision about what engine to use have changed in the midstream. Right. So I think that's another interesting problem here. I think at the end of the day, once the dust settles and people are like, okay, these charges aren't huge. And hopefully Unity makes a bunch of clarifications and simplifications to this. I do think the lock-in's pretty high. I mean, for bigger shops, they will develop their own engines, right? Like the biggest, the biggest folks out there do develop their own engines that already exist. You could use Unreal. Uh, for non-mobile developers, I think that's sort of the default. Just to be clear, they charge a royalty, which probably adds up to yep. more money than this. But Unity has always been the cheaper, we're just helping you solve developer problems. So I think it's going to shake out that it will be fine. It maybe opens the door to some of these smaller players. I think there is an open source game engine, Godot or something like that, that's out there that maybe people will shift to. But I... I think if you're already building a game, you're not switching because of this. What are what are Unity's pricing alternatives to per install and their current models? I think there's two things if they want to try to make more money from the, the runtime of the game once the game is is live. The two things are they could, and they're already doing this, but they could take a revenue share on in-app payments. And so for companies that want to use their system to provide microtransactions, they can uh, monetize those. There might be additional things that they can do there. They have the ad network. And then the third thing is, I think they could add hosting fees for certain cloud services that they position as, hey, if you want to use this cloud service, you want to integrate this into your game, this is something that we're going to operate. We have costs associated with this and we're going to charge you for that. And so, you know, that way they position themselves like like AWS and their, you know, their revenue will go up as games get more traction and, and have more traffic. I think that is a better aligned with the value that they're delivering. And to your point, Brian, I think the problem with the runtime fee is not that, you know, on an absolute dollar basis that Unity shouldn't be making that much from that game. It's that that, that event when I'm paying Unity is not correlated with Unity actually delivering value. Yeah. Whereas hosting fees or in-app payment fees or advertising fees are all areas where Unity is creating value. I have one slightly different view. I do think that a runtime fee could be viable but they added nothing they just said hey yep. totally new charge by the way it's unpredictable by the way you have no idea how much you're going to pay by the way it has all these caveats so you're just going to get a bill and it's going to be confusing like usage based pricing has all of these problems and we know about that but like adding usage based pricing on top of something that never had it before surprise is a huge problem and they added nothing the runtime didn't get any better it's not a new runtime they didn't add a bunch of features i think if i were to rewind time and do this again 
what I heard from developers I talked to is there are actually a lot of things about the runtime that have been like maybe neglected over time or not been focused on as much as it could be that I would like figure out what those things are, make a pro runtime, like a better runtime and charge for that or nerf the free runtime in some way eventually and people would still be pissed about that but you can't just change your whole pricing model and charge a ton more money and make it confusing and bring no value like a price change with no value to the table that might work if you're adding a dollar or 10 percent to the like existing structure i think if you're doing this you have to do something new you have to be like and wow it has these new features that you didn't have before surprise but they did none of that so I think if you were to stick with it, that's what I would do. Um, I don't know why they're morally opposed to the royalty fee. That's what Unreal does. They Not morally, but they seem to use it as a positioning thing. But now they've tried to keep that positioning, but also do something more complex, which also messes things up. I think they've the, the management team has gotten themselves in a tricky position, which is they're public now. They're not making making money. They need to increase their prices. They've done that on the subscription for years. So that's another thing that's added, I think, to the community backlash is their subscription has been getting more expensive over the last few years. And so they're in this position of they feel like they've often that they've subsidized the game development community by offering this incredibly valuable engine for less than it's worth. And now they're trying to figure out how to capture that value on top of all the organizational dynamics of having to get to increase profitability for the street. And so I think that led to this decision, which was, yep, makes sense. You know, as you said, Freed makes sense on a spreadsheet, probably has great revenue models so that it's driving, but just didn't make sense for the community. And, and now I think puts them in a much tougher position. Yeah. And on the community and trust side, they changed the terms of service in some ways that I'm not exactly clear on, but like retroactively changed some things they said they would never do. They have not been the best communicators in the past. There was no trust already. So this change, like there's no goodwill to build off of. So maybe that's another takeaway is like the more extreme a pricing change you're doing that may be bad for your customers, the more trust you need going into it. It's like, you kind of have like a goodwill tank and they were already at zero and then they did this and it just like dropped the floor out of it completely. Like they really had no goodwill ground to stand on. It sounds like from the folks that I've talked to around this. And so when you layer in the complexity and the trust issues and the price increase, it just like adds up to too much garbage, even though like, again, I think rationally on its face is not a bad change. It's just like the conditions for the change weren't right. Do you think they'll roll back the change? They issued an apology this morning at time of recording. I didn't get to read through the that. whole apology, so I actually don't know. It, it's a non-apology apology. It's like, we're sorry, <laughs> we're going to communicate more. No, it's like a we're sorry, but it sounds like a we're going to keep this and we're going to try to massage the corners versus a we're reverting. Oof. Okay. Mm. I think the reversion would be hard, though. I mean, like, I don't know. I, I think a related question to this is, you, Robbie, you pointed out before, like there is a difference between a pricing change, like a price increase or, you know, maybe a new tier and a, an entire model pricing model overhaul and change, which happens way less often, you know, to be frank and is, and is much, much more difficult to execute. But kind of one of the things that keeps coming up with the whole trend of AI, and I don't actually know, I don't know if I believe in this yet or not, which is that 
everybody believes like with AI, the per user seat model doesn't make sense anymore for a lot of different companies, which kind of sets up, uh, well, like if I'm going to survive and thrive, I'm going to have to go through a model overhaul and pick a new value metric and a, and a whole other set of things. We mentioned a few conditions or like a few things that you have to, you know, do to execute this well. One was just aligning with the value you're actually helping your customers create. That's probably the most important piece of it. Two is that you should be packaging it with things that additional benefits that you're rolling out to the customers as well, because having gone through price changes doesn't freaking matter. Somebody's angry. So you got, yeah, you got, always. you have to balance that <laughs> in some way, shape or form. There is, there is, is never rolling these things out without somebody being angry. Three is just simplicity. It almost feels like they didn't run this pricing grid through a whole bunch of customer feedback, but that's kind of hard to, for me to believe that they I would... believe they did. And everyone told them it was bad and they did it anyway. Oh, well, so that's interesting. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but I'm interested, like what other things to roll out a model overhaul, like, do you need to be considering doing to do this successfully? I think it's worth pre-flighting it and saying, you know, we're going, we're, we're thinking about how to better align how we're generating revenue with how we're creating value for developers. We put together a group of indie developers and AAA developers to help guide us and advise us on this new change. Our goal is to roll out that new pricing point at some, that new pricing plan at some point in the future, once we feel like we've got a consensus with the community and then they've prepped the community for this is coming. And then they also have the backstop of, you know, we're, we're working with the community to do this. And here's what we together with the community have come up with. I think the, the biggest problem here is it just took everyone by surprise and it felt like out of the blue, it felt like a one-sided decision in a two-sided market. And so, you know, as a result, they got, they got the backlash. And I think actually the best thing they could do right now is to say, we're hitting the pause button on this change. We heard the community. Unity is all about the community. Let's go back. Let's put together an advisory board. Let's figure out what's the right way to align how we create value with the unity, because we need to do that as a business with how to uh, enable developers. And we'll come back in six months with a plan for how to do that. And at that point, I think that that plan needs to be aligned with, you know, here's the reason, here's the value that we're creating, whether it's hosting fees, whether it's additional in-app payments, whether it's other things. And here's why we think this is the right way to price this. The surprise is a big part of this. <laughs> it definitely, yes, for sure. It definitely, it very, like this size of change, definitely. I mean, even with like typically a pricing increase, you're communicating that ahead of time, you're grandfathering people in, you're doing all sorts of stuff. And so for a model overhaul, that that feels like you have to extend that even farther. Yeah. And I think you have to, you know, you learn this in when you start building enterprise software, B2B software, is that you ha your timeline of how you how long you give people to react and communicate has to be aligned with the timeline of how your customers deploy and use your software. And so like here we're talking yeah. about customers who take two to four years to build a game and you're telling them in three months everything about how you pay for this is going to change. That feels like off, right? So I do think there's some amount of and 
as far as I can tell, they communicated nothing about grant uh, grandfathering customers. There's no way to keep what you have today. There's no opt in or opt out of these things. It's like, and that makes sense from a business perspective, but I think like creates has is part of what creates all the all these problems around it. I think the yeah, so it's communication. I'd worry a little bit about trying to build this with the community up front because I I do think on one hand like there are some th- like this isn't it's never going to be good for customers. It's always going to be it's like a question of how not bad. And I suspect that's probably the trap they fell into when they talked to customers. They're like nobody likes it, but like of course they don't like it. It's a price increase. It'll be fine. Like they sort of overestimated like network effects, lock in, those kinds of things and the and the benefit it would have. So I, I don't know if you'd get any, you'd have to be really disciplined to hear the right things and not the wrong things of that customer feedback in advance. But I, yeah, I think longer timeline, I think you have to give something back. Like in a major overhaul like this, like you have to do something that's better. So it is either cheaper for some people. <laughs> they raised the price and removed a plan on the SaaS part too. So it wasn't like you're going to pay less in SaaS, but more in per user fees, which for some people would be great. And for other people would be bad. Like no one got at the good end of the stick here. I think that's the other piece that's really confusing. It's like everybody got worse. So of course everybody's pissed. An interesting counter example is Netflix just dropped their basic tier. And as a result, you either could pay a little bit more and go into their standard tier, or you could pay a little bit less and go into their ad supported tier. And they took all of the features that were in the basic tier and put them in the ad supported tier. So you could essentially maintain the same functionality at a lower price point, as long as you're willing to be tolerant of ads, or if you didn't want to watch ads, you could pay a little bit more. And then as part of the standard plan, you get some additional benefits for that. And so the, the value proposition to the customer was really clear. Like I can pay a little bit more and get a little bit more, I can pay a little bit less and, and watch ads versus here. It just feels like a lose-lose thing for developers. They all, I mean, Netflix also timed that particularly well with locking down on, you know, password sharing too, which was <laughs> <so> yeah. it's <laughs> what, like, what are those, what are those give takes? I haven't looked at Unity's balance sheet, but like the more you two talk, the more it feels like, to, to Robbie's point, a $900 million loss. I just wonder how much of this is driven by like, we've got to make we've got to capture a lot more value a lot more quickly in order to to make the continue for this to be a, like a viable business so I, I just wonder how much of that is tying their hands behind behind their backs as part of it i think the other factor here is they were seeing that their ad business was going to grow really quickly but the growth on that has slowed because of some of the advertising tech changes and so you know, their growth business is growing slower than they anticipated. They have been able to increase their core business by increasing prices, but you know, it's not getting them the sort of velocity yeah. in terms of revenue growth that they need. Wow. I think it's interesting because I bet if they game this out, they knew people would be mad, but they'd figure it wouldn't matter because there's not a viable threat, right? It's like, yeah. it's the thing people always say will happen in monopolies, but rarely does, which is like someday Amazon's going to have X percent share and they're just going to crank up all the prices and no one's going to be able to do anything about it. And it's like in some of these markets where there really are only one or two players and, you know, like Unreal's expensive and more complex, et cetera. Like they, I think they figured it would be like, people would be mad, it would blow over and then it would be fine. And it's sort of taken on a life of its own (laughs) where it's like bigger 
than uh, they expected. And it's actually, I just saw some stuff on Twitter today, which is like, I ported my whole game to the open source engine over a weekend. And now it's like, sort of like lowered the veil on like how hard it is to switch. Like, you know, switching costs always feel bigger than they really are. Like you said about the, the Jira linear thing. And so like, once you make the incentive to try to switch higher, you just like open really the door point. to people leaving. So I, I think, this is a pretty self-inflicted wound. I think their network effects and lock-in are not as strong as they thought they were. And I think they started with so little trust that they just like, when you drop below that, nobody's giving you the benefit of the doubt and they hit the exits faster than you thought they would. So I think my lat, you, Brian, you said, what would you do if you were doing a model change? I would only do it if I, if I had like some measure, high MPS, high customer love, something like that, like some goodwill to build on because I think they just didn't have that here. I think the way to think about this is that the switching cost is always way lower than you think. I'm trying to invent a reforge diagram in my head. I'm imagining like a stack that's like, there's the cost to switch, but there's the incentive to switch too, right? Like what's the incentive for me to switch off this product? And the incentive is how strong is the other competitor? How much do I hate this product that I'm on? What problems will I solve if I switch? And the best way to increase your switching costs is actually to like lower the incentive to switch, not to make it harder to switch, right? Like there are a bunch of, and then there's like crappy ways to make it hard to switch. Like you can't export your data. Like that's lame. That's like user hostile. And then there's good reasons. I have a ton of historical information in this thing and it's really easy to search. And I like having that, but like Snowflake yeah, switching costs are high because I have no reason to switch. <laughs> Not because they like, it's impossible to move all my data from one one database to another, right? Another factor I think is, can your customer switch a little bit? Like, can they take one project and move it over? Can they... Can they uh, not move, you know, for a social network, can I move over some of my friends, yeah. but not all of my friends? And that's one of the reasons that I think that companies overestimate switching costs because they always assume that switching is going to be wholesale rather than piecemeal. And if you can switch piecemeal and a company or a team starts to switch and has a much better experience, and then that starts to grow within their organization, then over time that creates a flywheel and eventually everyone switches and they amortize that switching cost over a much longer period of time. And then they start to get better about what that switch looks like. And they're able to lower their costs because they understand the process of switching. And that's what I think makes the Unity situation so tough is there's no piecemeal switching for Unity. It's either you're on the Unity game engine or you're not on the Unity game engine. And to Fareed's point, they just massively increase the incentives for someone to make a really significant investment in, in switching and you know, surprisingly game developers are, are willing to do that. There's going to be some that can, depending on the complexity of their code base and others that that can't, but they just rose, raise those incentives and they're going to find that you know, some of their community is willing to make the switch and that it's really hard to get them to switch back. So Brian, Reforge has made a couple of actually very meaningful pricing model changes over the past couple of years. I'm curious what you've done in, in these changes to make sure that they were successful and actually communicate them to customers effectively. I think when we did this, okay, so a, a couple differences, I think, between Unity's model shift and Reforge's model shift. First and foremost, at least like when we layered on our team's pricing, we went from a per user to more of a tiered model. 
but there the tiers were still largely determined by like bucket of users there there was a tighter connection between the two of them the second thing was like those we because of like our annual pricing model and renewal is you got to opt into that new pricing when it came to renewals and for most of our folks was actually a better deal not a worse deal so that i think was a pretty that that was like a pretty significant piece of it as well and then i think for uh, a lot of folks even if you didn't like that we still kind of kept a way to purchase just through like individual accounts in a similar fashion than you you could previously though and then we're kind of like slowly transitioning some of those things out over time i would also say we are just much smaller in scale versus unity and we are not deep in the infrastructure of our cut like our customers do not run their business <laughs> on reforge like game developers do on unity though i wish in a lot of ways that they would so and actually maybe if unity would have taken the pricing course they this rollout would have got a tad, tad better but i i do think there's like some I do think there's like some fundamental differences there. It's certainly, I, I thought, I thought for Reed, your, your Figma example is both funny and good just to illustrate the size of shift this is for people who are not game developers. But yeah, it would be like us trying to monetize every time a PM inside one of our customers org like used our frameworks in their thinking. Right. <laughs> or something like that. Like that yeah. one. <laughs> Which, which this is, is, yeah. right are you gonna announce that later yeah, this week this is why that seems like a good like model. mba thinking is like it's like looking at all of the like literature it's like what's our value metric it's like oh well value comes for every user that you have and then like how do we exploit that well we do this and then like but like not looking at the whole package and being like no one's gonna like this this is awful <laughs> right it's like yeah it just feels like pure value extraction I think my recommendation on this is just like, you've got to do some value creation. You can't just extract value in a pricing model change. You have to do both. So you have to bring some net new value creation to the table for your customer. In the example of Reforge, Brian, we went from in the original pricing change from per seat. So this is way back 2020. We went from you buy a single course for X dollars to you get the full library for Y dollars. And now Y was less than X, just to be clear. So it's value creation and a lower price in exchange for a lot of larger audience and more people interacting and larger network effects. That's a net win-win for everybody, right? That's a win-win pricing change. Now you can imagine, let's say we shifted from that to, oh, but the live cohort is $3,000. It's like really expensive and bigger. Well, you have to make that product better. You can't just say the same thing is way more expensive and it's a model change. You lose a bunch of stuff you used to have and it's more expensive. You have to invest in that product and not just invest in it, invest in a way that's communicatable to that customer where they see the value immediately or have some fallback, right? Which is like, this is good enough to the Netflix example. It's like, oh, if I don't want to pay this price increase, I can, if I don't want to deal with ads, I can buy my way out. Now you have a real choice. Whereas this one's like, you have no choice. You have no way out. <laughs> It's totally unpredictable. Oh, by the way, we use a weird proprietary model to determine it. 
And there's a ton of edge cases, emerging markets, do you use the ad network, et cetera, that make it impossible to predict. It like has all the downsides and none of the upsides. Oh, I forgot to mention that one. Installs in emerging markets cost less than installs in US like Western markets too. So there's just like all these side things, right? Well, I think there's one thing that we can all agree on, which is that pricing changes are complicated uh, and really messy, which is why they require so much deep thought and customer feedback along the way. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I think we should wrap here. So once again, thank you, uh, Farid, for joining me, but also thank you to our guest, Ravi Mehta, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Please, please, please go to Spotify, Apple, whatever your favorite player is. Hit that follow, subscribe button, but also leave a little bit of a review. We're early in creating this podcast, so obviously a lot of iteration along the way. So we'd love to hear your feedback. That's where we'll wrap for today. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you at the next episode.